Smarties, last week we shared the first part of our conversation with clinical psychologist Dr. Donna Henderson. We had a wide-ranging conversation about autism, the diagnosis, the way autism presents in girls, why girls are so often misdiagnosed and misunderstood when it comes to autism. And today we want to bring you the second half of our conversation. The second half of our conversation focuses on walking families through the disappointment of a misdiagnosis, an understanding of a new diagnosis. And really one of the more fascinating parts of this entire conversation was how autistic learners process information differently. We talk about an idea that Steph and I were not familiar with called context blindness or context insensitivity. Donna gives us so many juicy nuggets in this episode. And I really also want to encourage if you haven't to go back and listen to last week's episode, episode 141, we'll link it in the show notes. And also please, please go listen to our extended conversation with her over on Patreon. Patreon is the best way to support the work that we're doing over here on this podcast. And with a small monthly donation of $5 a month, we thank you for your support by offering up extended conversations and freebies and things that we don't release to our general podcast audience. And that conversation that we have with Donna on Patreon today is so, so meaningful. We talk about the best ways to work with autistic learners, some really cool information about how to keep kids out of fight or flight, which is great for all learners, not just autistic learners and pacing. To join us and hear that conversation on Patreon, go to www.patreon.com slash Podcast. Let's dig in. You want to learn faster, but sometimes working harder is just not the answer. You have to learn smarter. The Educational Therapy Podcast. Hi, Smarties. Welcome to episode 142 of Learn Smarter, the educational therapy podcast. I'm Stephanie Pitts. And I'm Rachel Cap. And we are so excited today to continue our amazing conversation with Dr. Donna Henderson. Welcome. But another huge piece is interoception, right? Have you guys talked about interoception very much? No. Have you heard that word? No. no. Oh my God, this is so much fun. So you're okay. gonna you're gonna love this word. Okay. Interoception. I-N-T-E-R-O-C-E-P-T-I-O-N. Interoception. So people think that we have five senses, but we really have eight senses, right? And interoception is one of those other three senses that people don't think about. And it's your ability to feel the signals from inside your body. So this includes knowing when you're thirsty, knowing when you have to pee, knowing when you're tired, knowing when you're anxious, knowing when you're angry. It's bodily functions and it's also emotions, right? Okay. Okay. So autistic kids can have wacky interoception. It can be, (laughs) that's not the clinical term. Right. (laughs) Their interoception, so their signals from their body to their brain can be on high volume or on low volume or just distorted. So they might not know that they have to pee, or they might not know that they're anxious, or they might have really high or low pain tolerance. It can go in either direction. So this is where some of them can be overly sensitive, 
right? To the point where they look like they're being drama queens, but their bodies just feel everything so much. Yeah. Or have a low sensitivity and not know that they're hungry. And I've definitely had quite a few girls who have just, they don't feel hunger. They don't know that they're hungry. And then they're fairly rigid and nobody can force them to eat. And so everybody just assumes that it's sort of a traditional psychologically based eating disorder. Wow. Oh, and then there's one more. And I, I want to come back to interoception because it's a big deal, but I don't want to forget. Then there's sensory sensitivities. I was going to say. Absolutely. I mean, that's a big one. Yeah. Listen, I get it because I have sensory stuff and I talk about it all the time because my mom put me in sand as a baby and I screamed. Yeah. It's a hard way to live for sure. But the interoception piece is a huge piece for a lot of kids with autism. Oh, that's fascinating. One of the reasons I end up talking about it a lot is because so many autistic kids have anxiety and they don't benefit from psychotherapy a lot of the time. And I think it's because they don't know that they're anxious. And so a lot of psychotherapy mm -hmm. is teaching you when you're anxious, here's what you do. Right, what to do. <laughs> but none of that works if you never have that moment of, oh, gee, I'm anxious. My heart is pounding. My stomach is clenched. Feeling hmm. those, you know, visceral feelings. Another one for autistic kids, proprioception, knowing where your body is in space. And so they don't often know where their body is in relation to the chair they're sitting on or in relation to other people. And so you might get them standing too close to other people or too far away or orienting their body in the wrong direction, just you know, being aware of your body, right? Lately, I've been doing a lot of research on nonverbal learning disorders. And this is not my area of expertise, right? I'm like reading online. To me, it seems very nuanced and overlapping between autism and nonverbal learning disorder. Yeah. Can you talk, first of all, a little bit about nonverbal learning disorders and then talk about the overlap? I remember first learning about nonverbal learning disorders when I was an intern in 1991. And Byron Work had been writing about it. And it was this to me at least, cool new idea. And that was a million years ago. I feel like if it was going to end up being an official diagnosis, it probably would have happened by now. Mm -hmm. It's been around for a long time and it's never really achieved that level of, you know, we all agree on this. Yeah. Not a formal diagnosis. It's a neuropsychological profile. It's basically a cognitive profile. Okay. And a lot of people, and I'm one of them, believe that basically it's a profile that's seen in kids who are autistic and nobody realizes that they're autistic, right? Yeah. So you can have a lot of kids who are autistic and have phenomenal language skills. I mean, mm -hmm. off the charts, their vocabulary yes. blows you away. Early talking. Early talking, the best readers, the best, right? They're hyperlexic. I mean, just amazing. And their visual spatial skills are not going to be as strong. And so there can be a huge split. And of course, they're going to have the social awkwardness and they could have some math difficulty and, you know, that's where you get it. So I know a lot of people, you know, would disagree with this, but I feel pretty strongly that when I hear NVLD, I think subtle autism. Too. Subtle autism. Wow. Fascinating. And we'll be bringing on somebody specifically to talk about NVLD because this has come up for me. <laughs> so we use the podcast as a way of having conversations we want to be having with experts anyway. Yeah, for sure. I'll listen to that episode. I'll be curious to hear. Mm -hmm. Sure. So I would love to hear about the diagnosis. Will you walk us through 
the diagnosis in your clinic and what happens? What do you see? What reactions and all of that? As far as how people respond to hearing the diagnosis? Yeah. Sure. So I'll talk about the parents first and then the kids themselves. So as far as the parents go, there's always just a swirl of different feelings. And I try my best to validate each one of them because validation is this core need we all have, right? To know that somebody else sees our experience, understands our experience, and accepts our experience. It's a really simple but powerful way to help people with their emotions. So one really common reaction is relief. And parents can feel weird about feeling relieved. They often feel embarrassed about feeling relieved, but it does feel good to finally get an explanation for something that's been confusing you and troubling you for so many years. So I try to validate that, yeah, relief is a common reaction. There can be disappointment and anger that the diagnosis was missed by prior clinicians sometimes, and it's okay and understandable to feel those things. Although I do try to also explain how frequently this happens and to assure people that so many individuals find out that they're autistic well into adulthood. Mm-hmm. So it's all relative. Um, there's often guilt that the parents were not somehow aware that their own child was autistic, which is completely irrational. But, you know, we all have parent guilt, right? And I try to help them see that feeling guilty doesn't mean you are guilty. Right. Right. When we get the guilty feeling, we assume, oh my God, I must be guilty. And so I try to help them separate that. That feeling is just a reaction. You, you are not guilty at, at all. Um, and then of course, sometimes, and this does not happen a lot. This is maybe once, maybe twice a year thing for me is they just out and out reject the diagnosis. Wow. They just can't hear it. They're not in a place yeah. to hear it. And then I, I work to collaborate with them to try to come to some understanding of what parts do resonate with them, what parts don't, how are we going to write this up in an ethical way that we can all live with and just try to negotiate there. Mm, wow. And then walking the individual through finding out this diagnosis, how does that work? It's really similar, actually. There's often a ton of relief. The parents are usually incredibly anxious about telling the kid. And quite often I tell parents, you can tell your kid. And I have a whole, and I'm happy to send it to you. I I wrote a blog post on how to tell your child they have ADHD or autism. Oh, yeah. I'm happy to to send that. I would love that. Sure. Yeah. So a lot of times I just have the parents do it. I instruct them about how to do it, how to pick the right spot, how to present it. Sometimes I do it either because the parents are too anxious about it or because if both parents are socially quirky or rigid themselves, we all just agree it it might be better if if I do it. And most of the time, again, there's a lot of relief and a surprising number of teenagers have said to me, yeah, I've always wondered about that. Or yeah, people have said that to me and it never occurred to them to say this to their parents or even to me during the interview, but it's not a shock people always think it's going to be. It's a positive thing, again, because it changes the narrative in their brain. It absolves them of the guilt and the shame that they have likely been feeling, and it helps them be more compassionate to themselves. And I think that's so important. What age do you feel like they need to start knowing? As early as possible. That's how I feel. I do too. I 100% agree, but not every parent feels that way. 
Well, we want to normalize it, right? We want it to be like, you have brown hair, you have autism. Right. You know, like, Mm -hmm. it's characteristic. Yeah, but you also have to present it differently than, you know, to a seven-year-old than you would to a 14-year-old. Yes. Right. But you also present it differently to a four-year-old than you would to a seven-year-old. Absolutely. Right. But generally, having this sort of non-anxious not a big deal feel to it. I always tell parents, it's just like having the sex talk, right? If you're anxious, they're going to be anxious. Mm-hmm. You're like, yeah, this is cool. This is part of life. This is no big deal. They're going to pick up on that and they're going to feel that way too, right? So it's really similar in that way. What about telling siblings? Unless there's some really unusual circumstances and some reason why you couldn't, which I can't think of one off the top of my head right now, but maybe one exists. Yeah, yeah. yeah I mean... By keeping it a secret, you're suggesting that it's bad or shameful. Yes, right, hundred percent. And kids know that they're different, and siblings know that their siblings are different. You're not fooling anyone. Exactly, mm-hmm. exactly. So, let's put proper terminology on things, and you know, just be clear. Yeah, your sister was born with a different kind of brain. It's not her fault. Guess what? Some aspects of that different kind of brain are wonderful, and some make life harder for her. Let's talk about it, right? You know, keeping secrets in families is never, never a healthy thing. It suggests that the autism is bad, painful. Absolutely. I think it's very important. I talked to a mom recently. They don't keep it a secret, but her daughter was asking questions and she was asking me for resources to help her younger daughter understand. They've always talked about it, but she doesn't quite understand it but knows there's something going on. So that's why I bring it up. But I think the more we can give as much knowledge as possible, the better. Right. And sometimes what gets in the way of this is the parent has undiagnosed autism and hasn't dealt with their own feelings about all of this. And they know on some level they relate to that child. And, you know, there's a huge swirl of emotions there that complicates matters, right? Yeah, always, which is hard. Yeah. So would love to talk about how autism learners process information. Sure. Yeah. What does that look like? Oh gosh. Loaded question. I know. <laughs> this is fun. I just want to try to do it justice. So almost nothing in our world has a set meaning, right? There's a lot of uncertainty and ambiguity in everything we see, we hear in our sensory experience. So let me hit you with some examples so you can get a sense of how everything is ambiguous. Is it okay to tell a lie? Depends, right? Depends, yeah. What's a good present to buy? Depends. Depends. What does it mean if my heart is pounding? What does it mean if I say I'll talk to you later? When is later? Should my potatoes be mushy? I don't know. Are they mashed potatoes or are they potato chips? Mm -hmm. What do you do at a red light? That one seems obvious, right? But what if you're walking across the street and the light turns red? Do you stop? See how everything is ambiguous and everything depends on what? Context. Yes. Right? Mm -hmm. And so let's do some academic examples of ambiguity. How do you pronounce D-O-E-S? Does. Or female deer. Does. Yeah. Both Steph and I are like. (laughs) I know. Right. You go to one. But if I had shown you a written sentence that said the does you know, ate quietly in the forest, Sure, your brain would have just gone to doze. You would not have had to think about it. All right. So more academic examples. Do you capitalize the word what? Depends on where it is in the sentence, right? How do you spell there? 
It depends on the context of the sentence. How detailed should my essay be? Right? Reading comprehension. I mean, that's a whole context is everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. So to cope with all of this ambiguity, what our brain does, because our brain doesn't know, it takes educated guesses. And the way it takes educated guesses is by using context. And context is at like a million different levels. So for instance, if I say, Rachel, how was your day? And you say, fine. Then I'm going to use the context of your tone of voice and your body language and what I know about you as a person and what I know about our culture and how we talk to each other. Like there's so many layers of context to take an educated guess that your day was not fine, right? So the non-autistic brain takes context into account subcortically, subconsciously. It's super, super fast. It's not part of conscious thought. It takes almost no cognitive energy. It makes processing our world fast and easy, okay? And the other advantage of being context sensitive is that it tells us which details are relevant and which details are irrelevant which we have to do all the time. So like right now we're on Zoom and I'm looking at both of you. And what's relevant to me are your faces. Like by the way you move your faces, I could tell, am I talking too much? Is Steph trying to say something? Do I need to take a pause here? What I can ignore is what color Steph's walls are in the background or what color Rachel's headset is or if the microphone is to the right of you or to the left of you, or if it's perfectly centered, or whether that door behind Rachel is open or closed. And and so I could give you a hundred more examples of the details I'm ignoring right now, right? Mm -hmm, A hundred. Now, if I have an autistic brain, I am not good at context. And if I'm not good at context, I can't ignore any of those irrelevant details. Every detail seems relevant if you don't have context. So the autistic brain can't use that super fast subconscious process. So that's sort of what we typically do is that top-down processing. The autistic brain does more of a bottom-up processing, taking in these countless details and then trying to sort through them and put them together to make a picture. And that is a much, much slower and more effortful process. And there's a risk of overwhelm because all these details are coming at you all the time And so it's so easy to just feel overwhelmed by it all. And it's exhausting, right? I've never thought about this before. My mind is just blown. I know. (laughs) To walk through the world and essentially what's significant and what's insignificant, but everything feels significant would be so overwhelming. Yes. Not only overwhelming and exhausting, but anxiety producing. Mm -hmm. And how do you figure out what is significant and what is it? I can speak to the family history. You're being told a lot that isn't important. Right. And how invalidating that could be too. Yes, but it feels important. Right. But you're being told it's not important and you can't figure out why it's not important. Wow. It's so overwhelming. So I put together like a quick list of examples just from the past two weeks of kids and their context blindness. So we call this context blindness. Okay. And it's not really that autistic people are blind to context. It's more context insensitivity, but context blindness just has more of a a ring to it. It's easier to say. So that's what we say. It's like a context forest. 
the kids see the trees, not the forest is an analogy that we use a lot. Right. But in this case, they see the trees, they see the leaves, they see the bugs on the leaves, they see the... Exactly. And there's too many things. The forest is very full. That's exactly right. And one of the ways I sometimes explain it to parents is, let's pretend you and your child are all out walking in nature and everybody has binoculars around their neck. And the two parents wear their binoculars around their neck and every once in a while they pick it up to their eyes and they zoom in on something so they can talk to each other and say, oh, look at that tree over there just to the right of that picnic table. Mm-hmm. But the child never puts the binoculars down. They only keep the binoculars up all the time. So they're just going from one little detail to the other, and they're never getting the sense of the landscape or how the details fit in together. And it makes communicating harder and it makes connecting harder, right? So I want to hear this list, this example. Yeah. So, I mean, this is just a random list of examples I threw together really quickly earlier, but, and any one of them is not a big deal because we all have moments of context blindness, but it's when you see a pattern of this in a kid. So, and some of these are from the same kid and some are from different. So I asked a kid, what are the days of the week? And he asked school week, business week, or entire week. I asked him how many days are in a year, regular year or leap year. It's not that these are terrible questions, but usually kids automatically know days of the week, Sunday through Saturday, days in a year, 365. They don't have to wonder about those details. Right. How are a river and a mountain alike? This child said, well, how high is the mountain? That seemed relevant to him. How are three and four alike? This kid said, which four? Meaning F-O-U-R or F-O-R. Wow. Oh. But when I say, how are three and four alike, your brain automatically knew which four. You did not have to wonder. Absolutely. Wow. I was seeing this kid for anxiety, but we hadn't yet talked about her anxiety. She's 14. She knows that she's anxious, but we hadn't talked about it yet. And I said, so now tell me why you see Dr. McCarthy. And she paused and said, well, I'm not sure why we picked her. She thought I meant, tell me why you see Dr. McCarthy as opposed to Dr. Jones. Like, why did you choose that doctor? You see how it's totally different? Oh, it is. Totally different, right? So other examples, capitalizing random words in the middle of a sentence. I know you guys have seen that. That's All day, every day. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I worked with this really nice young man who was in his 20s and had signed up for active duty in the Marines and was going through boot camp and he eventually got kicked out. When they were in formation and the drill sergeant was screaming at them to stay in formation, if he saw a piece of litter, he would break formation to go pick up the litter and throw it away and then say to the drill sergeant who was screaming at him, well, no, but there was litter. Like he just totally missed the context of the situation and thought, you know, well, when you see litter, you should pick it up. He thought he was doing a good thing. At another kid who he was driving in the car with his parents. His mom and his dad were in the front seat. He was in the back seat. He was a really bright 12-year-old. His mom had to drop a book off at the library and she was just running in and dropping it off. And so the dad pulled into a handicapped parking spot and the dad wasn't leaving the car and he wasn't even turning the car off. Right. And the kid had a complete and utter meltdown. And I know you guys- It's not the rule. And we think, you know, rigid rule following. But when you think about it, it's missing the context. In that context, it's okay to stay in the handicapped parking spot for that 10 seconds Mm -hmm. when you could pull out if you need to, but the kid missed the context, right? So I could go on and on and on with these kinds of examples. I think you get it. I'm blown away. I am blown away too. I've never heard that phrase before. One of my favorite books is Autism as Context Blindness by Peter Vermeulen. 
It's amazing. And even though it's a, it's a theoretical book, he's a beautiful writer. It's very, very readable. It will blow your mind. It will change the way you think of autism and it will help you recognize these kids more readily and what's going on with them. Wow. I'm just Googling it. Sorry. Yeah, I was Googling it as well. <laughs> I want to put it in the show notes. It's an amazing book and it really helps you understand so much of what is going on with these kids academically, but also, you know, in various social situations, right? Because we need context to know how to be in social situations. We are not the same person all the time, right? We change who we are depending on the context. Yeah. This is super important because it just gave me some language that I didn't quite have. So I appreciate you very much. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you. I'm glad. That means a lot to me. I know you will love this book. Wow. It will open your eyes in so many ways. Donna, thank you so much for the second half of our conversation today. I know that this is going to blow some people's minds and certainly will lead to more conversations privately and probably publicly between Steph and I about mm -hmm. what we have learned as we sort of take a little bit of time to process everything that you shared with us today. But thank you so much for taking the time to be here. My absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So head with us over to Patreon where we talk about best ways to work with learners who have this diagnosis. Yes. Thank you. Have a great week, Smarties. Have a great week. 